You know, it's certainly not hard if you start looking for it online, but there are more and more people who are interested in documenting why they are leaving the Christian faith in our day. Uh, They refer to themselves sometimes as ex-evangelicals. And what they're doing is, is they're coming clean on the stories of why they're leaving Christianity. I found an article uh, a couple of months ago where people were detailing some of the stories of why they left. Listen to a few of these. The first one said this. They said, my minister lived across the street, and I used to hang out with his son who was my age and my friend. His mom, the minister's wife, got brain cancer, and it took her years of suffering until she died. Our minister broke down during a service, crying at the altar, and cursed God. It affected me very deeply. Hmm. Second story. I asked myself, would I have been a Christian if I was born in a country with a predominantly different religion and my parents were of that religion? And the answer was no, which made me ask, what makes Christianity more right than other religions? Hmm. Third story. The nail in the coffin for me was a service where we had to read a passage that said something along the lines of, quote, we are dust and ashes before God. And I couldn't get behind thinking that I was nothing, especially compared uh, to an entity I had never met or had ever heard from personally when I'd already had my fair share of bullies in school trying to convince me of the same thing. I I can testify for you that, that those are fairly common objections that people level. But, but isn't there something sort of unique that we learn whenever our faith is questioned by those who don't believe it, especially by the secular world around us? I think that during times of isolation, Christians have to get much more specific, not only about what they believe, but about why they believe it. Our passage that we get to this morning, we see the very first recorded sermon, like I said, that the Apostle Paul preaches. He's just launched this entire new ministry with he and a fellow named Barnabas who are traveling all throughout the towns of Asia Minor, or what we would know as modern-day Turkey, doing their best to convince people of the relevance of this new Middle Eastern religion. At the beginning of chapter 13, we find that the church had really been born and grew very rapidly in an ancient city called Antioch. Antioch is very important as a very cosmopolitan, very secular city that represents for Christianity one of the very first churches that had a majority Gentile Christians and not Jewish Christians. Uh, You can see this actually from the people who made up the early elders. You've got a black man named Simeon, first of all. You've got Lucian, who is from a city called Cyrene, certainly probably from northern Africa. If someone named Menaean, who was either a foster brother or a relative of Herod Antipas, which means he was of royal class. He was an upper class person. And then, of course, you have Barnabas and Paul. But the point is, is that this early church was a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial mixture of believing people. And I don't think it's a, 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 a coincidence that Antioch becomes one of the very first cities to launch missionary efforts all throughout Asia Minor. The reason I think for that is, is because the more ethnically diverse your fellowship is, the more you begin to see that everyone needs to come and believe the gospel. Its universal applicability becomes much more present. Now, for us here in what uh, we call the Christ-haunted South, our Christianity can often grow stale, can it not? And one of the reasons we do is because we tend to clump in homogenous groups. 
We might even get to a point where we feel insecure and wonder whether the Christian faith has anything to say to anyone outside of our own cultural boundaries. So when Paul stands up to preach in Antioch and Pisidia, he's preaching to a group of religious people who are at least familiar enough with Judaism to be open to hearing about the gospel. <laughs> but the message Paul is going to preach is going to be a radical departure from what they were used to hearing about in the synagogues for sure. And so what we need to look at this morning is how Paul presents the gospel to these people because you and I are in the same place. We're in a radically secularizing culture, which we expect, if trends go the way they are, to be in the minority, much in the minority over the next couple decades. And the question we have to ask is, is, is the gospel going to be relevant, if at all, to our children's generation? What are the features of Paul's preaching that we need to be aware of as we present the gospel in our generation? Well, I think there's at least three things we can identify. We want to see the gospel case, the gospel content, and the gospel conditions as a map for how to present it. First of all, let's look at the gospel case because we have to establish, first of all, who is Paul actually preaching to? Well, he says so in verse 16. He stands up and, and motioning with his hand. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Okay, so there's his audience. He's talking to Jewish people and he's talking to Jews called God-fearers. These were the Cornelius types like we studied about last week, right? And so these people are people with religious backgrounds and what we might call a spiritually minded worldview. What's interesting though, though, is that even in this crowd, Paul makes sure in his entire message that he's appealing to authorities that would have been compelling for his audience. You're going to notice this over and over again throughout the book of Acts, that the first question Paul deals with is, why should anyone listen to this? In other words, Paul makes his case for the gospel by appealing to voices that carried weight in the minds of his listeners. Does that make sense? Now, the question is then, what, what was that voice to Jewish people and God fears? Well, pretty simply, it was the Scripture. It was the Bible. This crew had a generalized respect for Old Testament writings, and so that's where Paul is going to root his argument. By the way, it's very interesting that when Paul addresses a much more secular people, he'll start by quoting from their particular pagan literary sources. Why? Because he's trying to establish relevance to make his case. Now look, stop there for a second because there's an immediate application here. Because when you and I hope to give, to sort of preach the gospel to those around us, whether they're co-workers, whether they're friends, or maybe even spouses and children, we first have to establish the relevance of why it's important for them to hear what we're saying. And in the most general sense, we can say, I think, that there's two kinds of appeals that we make to people. One we might call as an objective case. The other one is a subjective case. Here's what I mean by that. Take the first one, an objective case. There's a sense in which we are trying to present the gospel to people because we believe that it is true. That is, regardless of how you feel about these facts, if they happened, as they're outlined in Scripture, you have to listen to them. They have to be grappled with. Now, mind you, <laughs> as soon as you start talking this way, you're, you're speaking Swahili to most people in this generation. That's completely foreign. Because you're saying that you have something that's true. There is no true. Truth is just your truth. There is no one voice that speaks for all mankind. It's just people's subjective opinions about how they insist that you treat them. That's the idea. 
What's interesting, though, about that, by the way, for a small aside, that's the way people talk in our day, but it's not the way they act. (laughs) What's interesting about this is even the most ardent objectors to the idea that there is some kind of universal truth in the world will raise an awful stink if all of a sudden you offend their sensibilities. But what we try to gently remind people is, is, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't insist on the one hand that there is no actual truth that sort of binds all people together, but then all of a sudden insist on truth of us living the way in which you insist truth might be. It reminded me of an illustration I heard about people back in the 1960s who, of course, were out you know, with placards and, and, and protests about how, how much the older generation was not allowed to sort of place their arbitrary sexual ethic on the young people's shoulders, hence the sexual revolution. There are no rules. Your rules are arbitrary. You just made those up. And yet the very next weekend, these same people would be out with placards saying and protesting the Vietnam War and how unjust it was. Okay, well, which is it? (laughs) Are there rules in the universe governing not just justice or unjust wars, but also sexual ethic, or are there not? Because you can't have both in the same spot. So in some sense, we're making an objective case because we believe this is true. But don't be fooled. We're making a subjective case as well, that we're coming to people and saying, "We we believe that Christianity is also good for you. In other words, we want you to hear the gospel because we think it meets the deepest aspirations of your heart. We think that it can solve the most basic fundamental needs of the human condition. In other words, we want you to believe the gospel because you need it. Now look, there's a subjective and objective side to this, and you really have to keep both of them together. I think churches and denominations get a little sick when they divide these two things. Think about it. If you only have the subjective case without the objective case, what happens is is the faith gets pulled out of alignment because it's a a faith built purely on felt needs, right? We're here to meet your needs, of course, which is fine at first until all of a sudden things get difficult and you realize that this is no longer meeting my felt needs. And so you bail on Christianity when it doesn't work for you. Likewise, if you only have the objective case for Christianity without a sense of how it applies to your heart, well, then you run the risk of actually a faith that's purely rational. That is, you know, you can become a Christian because I, I don't know, I signed a sheet that said I believe in these set of facts, right? There they are. But when it comes to how my faith deals with my sin and my sense of believing, ah, those questions never seem to come up. Now, do they? I'm too busy arguing over the minutia of doctrine. See how those two things have got to be staying, stay together. Now, here's where I can hear what you're saying. You're being like, okay, this is very technical. You just use the word objective and subjective. I'm not exactly sure what that means less. How in the world am I supposed to present the gospel in such a nuanced way? Okay, but look, don't complicate it. Notice how Paul does it. Look in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul makes this case. He says, look, listen to what he says. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now look, when he says our fathers, he's doing something very subtle there, which I think is genius. Paul is appealing to the Old Testament story of the people of God, yes, but he's doing so by including them in their story. Does that make sense? He's saying, these are your fathers, Israel. These are your ancestors, God-fearers. In other words, there's a way of presenting the gospel to religious people where you include them in the story that you're telling. 
so that when they begin to see themselves in the story that you're telling, they immediately connect with its relevance. Think about this for a second. You know this to be true. How many times have you sort of given someone kind of an outline of Bible facts, and, you know, which maybe you found substantive? You found it compelling. Look at this. At this, an empty tomb. Blah, 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 you got all these things you're saying. But all of a sudden, when you, when you hear someone give, though, a testimony of what's going on in their lives and how God is sort of sustaining them in that moment, you ever notice how suddenly those truths come home to you? Why? They become fresh and affable because they begin to see their story in your story. So don't complicate it. One of the best ways to hold together the objective and subjective case for the gospel is by simply telling your story. To talk about how Jesus is dealing in your recent history. Because it can be sometimes a thousand times more powerful than the fanciest presentation somebody could make. Okay, so that's the sense of the gospel case. Secondly, though, we need to look and dive into the sermon and see exactly what the content of the gospel is. Because throughout 16 through 25, what Paul is doing is, is he's making his case by saying how often God, we could summarize it this way, has been the one who's taken the initiative of grace. If you look at the history of these people in his relationship, God said, I am the one who chose the Jewish heroes who would lead you from the, through the, your escape from Egypt. I am the one who gave you those leaders. What's his point? His point is if you do a quick summary of Israel's history, Paul is proving that God's favor has never been something that was earned. It's always been something that's been done by his gracious hand and these great leaders who was going to come and save them through his gracious power. And he finishes, of course, what we read at the end in verses 22 and 23 about King David and clarifies that there was this great hope that someone who would come, like David, a promised one, as he says there in verse 22, and the prophet John the Baptist was coming to miraculously testify to that fact. And that person, of course, was Jesus. That's where it was all pointing to. In other words, Paul is trying to say, the whole story of your people has been leading to Jesus. Christianity is Christ. That's, what, that's the fundamental sense of his sermon that he's preaching. But here's what's fascinating. Did you notice that in his sermon, Paul doesn't get wrapped up in the teachings of Jesus? Did you notice that? What he focuses on is on his life. He shows how Jesus was sentenced to a crime that he was innocent of. He talks about that he's the innocent on behalf of the guilty. Then he says he was raised again from the dead of all things. In other words, Paul makes this case that only if Jesus is raised from the dead could that prophecy about David ne never seeing decay in Psalm 16, that's the only way that could actually be true. Now look, there is so much here to unpack, more than we have time for. But I just want you to see that according to Paul, the gospel is not good advice for you. That's not the gospel. Every other world religion looks at you and says, look, here's the way, here's the path. If you follow this, if you do these things, then you will achieve life, happiness, fulfillment, whatever. But it's only in Christianity do you have Jesus not being primarily known as a great teacher, though of course he certainly was, but that in the very first sermon Paul preaches, he talks about what Jesus did while he was on the earth. We could say it this way. Every other religion is an exercise in showing you how you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and save yourself. 
but only in Christianity <laughs> do you have Jesus primarily coming along and saying your relationship to God is going to be on the basis of free, unmerited grace. It's the only reason it's going to happen. Look in verse 29. Paul says that after Jesus accomplished all this, they, quote, took him down from the tree. Now think about this. This is a Jewish audience, and God fears, who would have known the Scripture, which means they probably would have been familiar with places like Deuteronomy 21-23 that insist that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. They would have known that. Why? So that he could take the curse from me. So that he could offer salvation purely on the basis of his merit and not mine. Look, y'all, this is so crucial to understand when we start to think about about evangelism and Paul's message to the nations because the gospel is not advice that we're giving to people to follow. It's not a path that we set people on in hopes of them one day achieving their ideal self. The gospel's not good advice. It's good news. To illustrate, take this for a second. You know, a number of years ago, there were a lot of uh, scholars who got really worked up about something called the Gospel of Thomas. You ever hear of this? It was a lost gospel, one that for some reason we forgot to put in the New Testament. Now, look, the conversation waned pretty quickly because they found that it had almost zero historical verifiability or any kind of authenticity. But I remember having college students who were kind of bent out of shape about it, afraid that, like, they didn't have the whole Bible in their scriptures. And so I would simply invite them to read it and would give them a copy and get it online, read it for yourself. Y'all, every single time that a student actually took me up on it, they came back and said the same thing. They're like, oh, that's a totally different thing than the Gospels. Never mind. Why? Because it didn't talk anything about the events of Jesus' life and death. Look, lots of Christians have tied the gospel to things like, well, you need to say this prayer to be saved, or you need to stop doing such and such, or you need to join this church and get involved. Now, mind you, I'm, I'm totally for all those things. But look, those are the effects of the gospel, not the gospel itself. And when you present it that way, Christianity just becomes like a, like a system that you kind of plug yourself into rather than an event that is to be believed. That's the difference. The gospel of good advice, frankly, is a whole other religion altogether. It's the exact opposite of Christianity, which is a nice lead-in into my third and final point. We've seen the gospel case and gospel content, but what are the gospel conditions? Well, you can see this in the way that Paul wraps this up in his sermon. Because he's made the case for relevance and he's presented the content of the good news. But look at verse 38 and 39. Here he puts down the conditions of how you receive this news. Look what it says in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All right, now look, that word that appeared twice there, translated freed, in almost every other place in the New Testament is translated as the word justified. Now look, that's a big one. You could translate what Paul is saying is, everyone who believes is justified. And I don't think there could have been anything more transformational to these people than this particular truth. And what you're going to find is that once people begin to really get what we call the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, nothing is the same afterwards. It is massive teaching that Paul has given us here and worth us diving into. Look at what he says in that last phrase in verse 38. Because he says, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Now look, that would have been sent, that would have made sense to religious people. They understand that everyone sins, everyone needs to be forgiven. And if Paul had simply stopped there at verse 38, Christianity would have been like every other world religion, offering, you know, appeasement for all those who come humbly to God in penitence. That's what it would have been. But by going on and saying that we can be freed, that we can be justified in a way that the law of Moses could not, what Paul is saying is, is that justification goes way past just forgiveness. And what he's saying almost is, so look, if all you have is forgiveness, sure, you've had your slate wiped clean. Forgiveness is basically past looking. He forgave me for what I've done in the past. But when you're justified, you not only have that wiped clean, you actually have Jesus' perfect record put on you. Yes, forgiveness is wonderful, absolutely. But if that's all I have, the second that I wake up feeling forgiven, I go back on probation. And the law is still hanging over me. Sword of Damocles, still threatening. Well, will he forgive me this time? And we walk around incredibly insecure. But look, if justification is true, though, (laughs) this is the key that unlocks the mystery of why the Gospels read the way in which they do. Over and over again, you see Jesus teaching, yes, and all that is super important. But the emphasis in those texts of the four Gospels is on what Jesus does more than what he says. You find him always acting rightly. He's judging correctly. He's always obeying his Father. He's always resisting temptation. He's always subjecting himself to unjust legal systems. That's what Jesus is doing. And the first time you read it, you're like, uh, okay, why would that have anything to do with me? Somebody 2,000 years ago did these things? I don't know. But here, if justification is true, then all of those things that Jesus did on earth was him establishing this perfect record that would eventually be applied to your account if you believe And that means that I am now clothed in him. The Father has no record of my my sins, past, present, or future. He only sees and counts what the Son has done on your behalf. That's bigger than forgiveness. That's beyond mere forgiveness. That is assurance. That's security. I put it this way. It means now you're beyond probation. That law, the law of Moses that Paul is talking about, I don't know what it is for you. you got something hanging over you right now that you either perform or live up to or that you don't. The beauty of justification says that now that law that used to make you feel guilty all the time, because Jesus did it perfectly, that law now speaks on your behalf. <laughs> you can get excited about that law because you're like, yes, I failed at that. But Jesus didn't, and I am in him, and he is mine. And I've put my faith in him. This is, the only, <laughs> this is the only solution to the helplessness of the human condition. And you'll know when you are believing it, when all of a sudden it becomes exciting to you. Was there ever a time in your life where someone announced that and you thought to yourself, whoa, 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 say that again? Well, more, than for, more than forgiveness. Like perfect in his sight. So so it's not that, it's not that I kind of like, I don't know, join church and because I did some bad things, I'm going to join church and now I'm kind of, I'm doing my best, pastor, you're just going to try to hold it together. 
Now, but you're saying that actually Jesus did it all for me? Like past, present, and future? Like, like he's made me that secure? Has, that ever, has it ever lit you up on the inside? Because that's what Paul calls belief. <laughs> it means to find something to be attractive, to find something that's worth longing for. Little uh, Ronan Rapp was born with Tay-Sachs disease, which is a genetic, very rare genetic disorder of which there is no treatment and there is no cure. And his mother, Emily, documented his short little life in a blog that she eventually turned into a book she called The Still Point of a Turning World, where she captures the heartbreak and yet strangely beautiful experience of parenting a child with a terminal illness. But as she documents just this excruciating journey with a dying child, there was one writer who saw in her story something very attractive because he said that he noticed in her a kind of love that existed outside the world of merit and checking boxes to see if I'm valuable. And in a review of the book, he said this. He says, Emily invokes a form of love that is fundamentally unconcerned with results or behavior because it can't be and is all the more powerful for it. In doing so, Emily allows us a peek at what uncoerced, unconditional love really looks like in relationships. Now, oftentimes when you hear stories like that preached in sermons, you think to yourself, you know what? Oh, that is so true. How brave that woman must have been. How do you parent a child with a terminal illness? How does one even go through that? Y'all, we should totally be like that bomb and love people unconditionally in that way. May I say, if that is your first instinct upon hearing stories like that, you may have missed the beauty of justification. <laughs> because to be justified means not to associate with the mother in that story, but to associate with the child. Because the child is there helpless. The child is there hopeless, not able to do anything at all for his salvation. He lays there with a terminal illness that's going to take him unless someone acts upon him by grace. That's how you know if you're believing. So you see what it means to preach the gospel? The gospel is relevant. <laughs> it's the good news of Jesus perfect in life. And when we begin to cast our joys and our belief on him, we find the, we find the only way to true life. That's what we come to celebrate this morning. That's what we'll do at the table. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we ask for your assistance in helping us believe it. Because at the root of all of our struggles, wherever our mind is drifting to this morning, it ultimately comes back to a need for your grace. And so we ask that for all of those in this room who for whatever reason may be estranged from you, people who may be boiling in resentment over things done to them or about them, Father, would you by your grace this morning move towards them, perhaps even in the midst of the supper, call them to yourself. Father, save us Draw us into something sweet to the grace of the gospel. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.